Thank you for listening to the Reformation Bible Church podcast. We hope you are edified and encouraged by our ministry as you listen to our Gospel of John sermon series. For more sermons and resources, please visit the RBC website at www.rbcbakersfield.org. Thank you once again, and may the Lord bless you. Our Lord and our God, we come before you in the name of Christ, and we thank you for giving us this morning to come and to worship you in song and in word, in worshiping you at your table, in worshiping you in giving, worshiping you in fellowship. Thank you that you have provided all of these as a means of grace for us to be drawn closer to you and to your people. We pray that we would take advantage and rejoice in all of the things that you have provided for us to experience this morning on your day. God, give us ears to to hear this morning. Give us hearts to receive. Give us minds to understand. Give us hearts, Lord, once again, to 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 believe and to receive. God, we pray that you would speak to us through your word concerning joy and where it is found. God, we pray. I pray this morning that you would help me to decrease so that you can increase. Help me to become less so that you can become more. We ask all these things for the sake of Christ and for the glory of God. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning and let's stand for the reading of God's word. John chapter 16. And we'll start in verse 16 through 24. A little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I am going to the father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So we said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while. And you will see me truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But she has. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now. But I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the father in my name, he will give to you until now. You have you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. This is God's word. Those who have ears to hear are blessed to hear what the Spirit of God says to the church. You may be seated this morning. The Lord Jesus is still ministering to his disciples just before he is put to death. Recap, he has warned them that because of their unity with him, they will be hated by the world. They are his slave friends, and they will be sent out into the world with the message of repentance and reconciliation. The hatred, though, that they will experience 
from the world will be no different than the hatred that Jesus experienced when he was in the world. For the hatred that his disciples will undoubtedly experience will be rooted in a hatred for Jesus. He told them these things for the purpose of warning them of the cost of following him. And he is also saying these things so that when they happen, that their trust in Christ will increase. Now think about that. Why would their trust in Christ increase when these things that he has told them beforehand take place? Simply because he has told them that they would take place. Therefore, he has seen what will happen before it has happened. Therefore, their their trust in him, their confidence in Christ will increase because only God knows the future. And only God can foretell what will happen as it will happen. And Christ is therefore saying to them, when these things happen, let let them be an example for you or an opportunity for you to have your faith in me increase because I have seen before it has taken place what will happen to you. Only God could know such a thing. Only God could forewarn his four loved ones of the dangers that would surely come their way. And this knowledge that Christ has is to raise the confidence of his disciples. Why? Because his, his sayings are trustworthy. What Christ says will happen. He has not made, brothers and sisters, one promise that will not come to pass. Everything that he says, you can bank on it. Everything that he says, you can trust in it. He has promised them that, although he is going away, they will not be left alone. He is sending to them the helper. As we said last week, the the parakletos. Verse 26 of chapter 15. He will bear witness about me. And you will also bear witness. They will be given the promised comforter. The promised helper. The witness Enabler, if you will, to guide them in all truth. Verse verse 14 of chapter 16. He will glorify me and he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The disciples are hearing these departing words from Jesus. And our tender shepherd can see distress on the faces of these increasingly bereaved men. This is too weighty for you now. This is too much for you to carry right now. Now, it is difficult to know whether or not our Lord and his disciples are still in the upper room. You may have been wondering this as we've been going through these past few Sundays. Where are they actually? At the beginning of chapter 18, after the Lord's high priestly prayer, we read in John 18:1, when Jesus had spoken these words, listen, he went out. Across the brook of the Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and disciples, he and his disciples entered. It is possible that they are still in the upper room. But at the end of chapter 14, Jesus says, rise, let us go from here. Where was here the upper room? So it is probable that they are they have actually left the upper room and they are walking through the streets of Jerusalem In the middle of the night, heading toward the Mount of Olives. And while they are walking, 
Jesus is speaking. And it's important for you to get the picture here. Get the scene. As they are possibly making their way through the Jerusalem night, in the middle of the night and passing through different streets, Jesus says to them in verse 16, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. Now, the disciples begin to look at one another and, and, and look to one another for understanding. They begin to ask one another as they leave. Which leads us to our first point. The disciples were being overcome by confusion. So the disciples overcome by confusion. Verse 17. Here's what they begin to ask. What is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while you will see me. And because I am going to the father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. What do you think about the disciples when you hear the questions that they're asking at this particular juncture of the story? What do you think about them? Do you think that they're foolish? Do you think that they're stupid? Do you think, how could you not, how could you guys not understand what he means by a little while? Here's what I'd like you to do for just a moment. I'd like you for just a moment, in some measure, to try to put yourself in the shoes of these people that we're reading about. In this case, the 11 disciples. These men are becoming increasingly confused and increasingly distressed at almost every single word that Jesus is saying. It is almost as if they could wish he would stop speaking. Because the more he speaks, the more confusion wells up in their hearts. And the more distress wells up in their hearts. Put yourself in their shoes. He has been with them for the past three and a half years. They have clung on to every single word that he has spoken. There is a bond with him that they have like no other. And beyond all of the things, the miracles and the great acts that they have seen him perform, above all of those things, they also believe that he is the Messiah. And he is saying to them, I am going away. He is saying to them, you will not see me any longer. He is saying to them, and then you will see me. Put yourself in their shoes. How confused would you be? Try to understand what's going on in their minds. Try to understand what's going on in their hearts. Listen, try to hear with their ears. Try to hear with their ears what the Lord is saying as he prepares them for his going to the Father and then returning to the Father and his sending of the Spirit. This is not easy, though. Even as we sit here today, it's not easy. Why? Here's why. Because we live on this side of Calvary and on this side of Pentecost. We are, as it were, looking back at over 2000 years of the coming of the spirit. Of the risen, ascended, regnant, reigning, returning Jesus Christ at Pentecost. We have 2,000 years of Holy Spirit illumination, illuminating for us the, the rich truths that Jesus was ministering to his disciples. The disciples at that particular time, they were living in an age, living in an age of shadow. And as I say that, try to put yourself in their shoes. And I know it's difficult, but they are living in an age of shadow. The kingdom of God had come with Jesus, but they're still living in an age of shadow. 
They were like the man who was healed of his blindness, who at first, when Jesus laid hands on him, he said, I see, but I see men like trees walking around. And so Jesus once again laid hands on him and then he could see clearly. These disciples were seeing like that blind man who I see, but I don't see. They were living in an age of shadow and they were living in an age of promise. But shadow would soon give way to substance and promise would would soon give way to fulfillment. So why the confusion? What was the root of their perplexity? They were trying to. Here's the root of it. They were trying to get their minds wrapped around this. A suffering Messiah. There was three men yesterday who I sat with. And here's what they could not get their mind wrapped around. You say that Jesus is God. How can God die? You see, the confusion and the perplexity has not changed that much. The only difference was those men were following Christ. These men have rejected Christ. They were trying to get their, ha- their heads around. But, but didn't they know? Didn't they know the scriptures? Didn't they know Psalm 22? Didn't they know Isaiah 53? Of course they knew these passages. And you should too. They knew these passages by heart, they did. But we are seeing those passages and passages like those with the privilege of standing back and seeing the big picture. The spirit has come and we can now see the interconnectedness between Christ and those passages. But for them, the teaching of Jesus is still discreet. They still ask what does he mean? They're trying to wrap their, round, their heads around a, a suffering Messiah in light of what they knew and believed about the Messiah, that he would come, set up the kingdom. And yet here is the one that they say is the Messiah who is saying to them, I am going to suffer. It makes no sense. Remember what, what when Jesus At the end of the book of Luke, Luke 24 to be exact, he falls into step after the crucifixion and after the resurrection. He falls into step with some disciples who are heading to a place called Emmaus. And he says to them, good day. Why do you look so downcast? And they said to Jesus, are you the only person in Jerusalem who has not heard what has happened? What are you speaking of? Jesus. Jesus They killed Jesus. And he says to them, you foolish disciples. They said to him, actually, we had hoped that he would be the one to redeem us, to redeem Israel. This is the Messiah, and yet he died, and we had hoped he would be the one. Do you see the confusion there? We had hoped that he would be the Messiah, that he would usher in the kingdom, and the kingdom had come. They were still seeing the truth of God through shadow. They were confused, yes, but they were not the only ones who were confused. John the Baptist, of all people, sent his disciples to ask Jesus, Are you the one that is to come? Or should we be looking for someone else? 
He is the one that baptized the Lord Jesus. He had witnessed the Father confirming Jesus is my son. And there was even a point in the life of John the Baptist when he was trying to wrap his mind around Jesus. Who is this? And what does Jesus say? He says to him what he says to all who have any doubt about Jesus. Go back and read the scriptures. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who was not offended by me. Go read Isaiah 61, he tells John the Baptist. We must appreciate. We must appreciate what the disciples are doing. What they're saying. What they're asking. And we must also try as best we can to put ourselves in their shoes. We should not be surprised when they ask, what does he mean? They were not spiritual fools. They were confused. But at that particular time, here's the the reason for most of their confusion. They could not, as it were, bear all of the things that Jesus had to say to them now. It was too weighty for them. It was too much for them to carry. Their perplexity was a redemptive historical perplexity. And let me explain what I mean by that. Now listen close. Because you also play a role in this. They were finding themselves on this great line in redemptive history. And here's where they found themselves on that great line between the fall of Adam and the consummation of Christ and his church. They find themselves on that line prior to Calvary. And prior to Pentecost, they are on that line, but they are finding themselves prior to those great events that we now look back to and say, ah, yes, he's speaking about his crucifixion. Oh, yes, he's pointing to the day when the Holy Spirit would be pointed at, poured out. They did not know these things that you now know. They could not yet see the power of the cross and the resurrection. They could not yet see the power of Pentecost. You see it. They had excuses. You have none. Having said that, we must find out for ourselves or we must realize for ourselves that we also find ourselves on that line in redemptive history. They, in their lives, were found prior to Calvary and and Pentecost. We, right now, find ourselves prior to what? Prior to the consummation and the coming of our Lord. And we still, we still like them to ask, what does he mean? Because there is things that are to come that we do not understand. There are things that we cannot yet see that we ask, what does he mean? You don't believe me. Read Matthew 24. Read of the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and then come and tell me what that means. You don't believe me. Read First Thessalonians. Read the book of Revelation. We find ourselves, too, on that line in redemptive history, and we still, too, ask, what does he mean? Paul said in First Corinthians thirteen twelve. for now, listen close as you write, for now we see, we see in a mirror dimly. Or we see through a glass darkly. 
We see, but we don't see. The age of full and final revelation still awaits us. And we are confessing with Paul always. Oh, the depth and the riches and wisdom of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Paul coming to the end of the explanation of the gospel at the end of Romans. And here's what he says. I'm out of my depths. I see, but I don't see who can know the mind of God. Brothers and sisters, perplexity is woven into the very fabric of the Christian, of authentic Christian experience. Perplexity is woven into the very fabric of authentic Christian experience. This was my feeling last week. As I was attempting to explain the unexplainable trinity. It was amazing to me yesterday. Sitting amongst these three Muslim men. They tried to explain to me the trinity. And they took three coffee cups. And they said to me. This is your trinity. Iced tea mocha. Green tea blah blah. You know about all that stuff. I couldn't name it. And I said to them. After they were done. I said. That is the worst explanation of the trinity. I have ever heard in my life. You can't explain the Trinity. And as my brother encouraged me, and, and often as he does in more ways than he realizes, he said to me after the sermon yesterday, great job, brother. Actually, he calls me pastor. Great job. And he said, and it's always wise not to fly too close to the sun. Getting that close to try to explain something that deep. Uh, that's as close as we can get. We don't know everything. But we do know some things. God has revealed to us much in his word. And yet there is much here that has been revealed to us that we still do not understand. But one day we will know. Even as we are known. And what a, a marvelous day that will be. We know in part, the Bible says, what we shall one day know in full. And doesn't that cause us to, to yearn, to grow and to keep pursuing? That should not cause you to say, well, I'll never know. It should cause you to keep striving to understand. Prior to their understanding, these men would look at the cross as something that they would completely run from. But then after the understanding, they look to the cross as something they absolutely run to. And God brings clarity to their confusion. And notice how he, he responds to their confusion. Second point is this. Jesus responds or Jesus points his disciples to this unimaginable, unending joy. They have confusion and perplexity. And Christ points them to unimaginable, unending joy. Verse 19. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while you will see me. You will weep and lament. But rejoice or but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but the but your sorrow will be turned to joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy. That a human being has been born into the world. So you also have sorrow now. But I will see you again. 
and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Jesus says, in a little while, I'm going to die. This is the meaning of the beginning of a little while and a little while. In a a little while, I'm going to die. And in a a little while, I'm going to rise. Jesus knows that life lies beyond death. And notice that Jesus responds. Listen to this. He does not respond to them so much with answers. Look at that verse. Is this what you were asking? This is what you are confused about. And notice that he does not necessarily give them answers. Instead, he gives them comfort. He does not really give them answers. He gives them assurance. This is how he conforms us. He often does not give you answers, does he? But what does he do in the midst of your searching for answers? He gives you comfort. You cannot know all things now. And sometimes it is too much for you to bear at that moment. If you could see down that line what Christ was trying to accomplish or what the Spirit of God is trying to accomplish in your life and what you must go through, it will be too much for you to bear, too weighty. So in the process of not giving you answers, he gives you comfort. I am with you. I am comforting you. Above all, the assurance is this, that their sorrow will be turned To joy. Notice though, that Jesus does not remove the realities of sorrow from their lives. He does not say, he says to them in verse 20, you will weep and lament. Jesus is going to the cross and he will not spare them of that sorrow. The weeping, the lamenting, if you don't know what lamenting is, lamenting is a type of cry In which you want to die. How many of us have cried that way? Cried uncontrollable tears. And he says to them, you will travel that road. Not you might. Or not that I will give you another route in which you can avoid that road. No, you will travel that road. He does not. Notice, he does not pat them on the back and say... Cheer up, boys. No worries. Hakuna Matata. Whatever you're liking. No. He says to them, you will weep. You will lament. You will, over, you will be overwhelmed, overcome with grief. They will not be spared of this great sorrow. They must go the way of pain. And in that day and in that path, they will find joy. Why must they go that way? Why must they travel that path? Because Christ is going that way. And all who follow Christ must follow Christ. The world here will rejoice. The world is speaking of sinful humanity in general. They will rejoice. And why will they rejoice? Because the world will have believed that they have finally silenced the one who is placing guilt on their sinful heads. The world will rejoice because they feel that they have finally put to death the one who exposes their shame. The Lord Jesus Christ. Crucify him, they will shout. We have no king but Caesar, they will say. Because this man, 
exposes our darkness. So we will take a pagan Lord over the God of the universe because the God of the universe shows us that we are not righteous in our own sight. And this pagan king says, live as you will. They were choosing Satan over Christ. Sinful humanity is bent on suppressing the truth of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus. And they will try at every turn to put to death Christ, therefore and therefore silence their own guilt. I said to these three men yesterday, as one confidently said about himself, when I stand before God, it will be based upon what I have done. And I said to him, that is a hopeless way to live because you will never know whether or not you have done enough and you will stand before God. I said this at the end, you will stand before God and he will say to you all that you have done. Not good enough. Matter of fact, not even good. There was a, 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 a tense moment I was sharing with my brother yesterday. In which the man said to me, no one knows. I said, I do know. I have an assurance that when I stand before God because of the works of Christ, I will be saved from my sin. And one man, the angry man, slapped me and said to me on the shoulder and said to me, you know who was going to heaven and who was going to hell? I said, I do. He said, tell me. And in his eyes, I saw the type of anger and rage of someone who hates Christ. Because I pointed back to him and said, the Bible says... Those who place their faith in Christ alone will be saved from the wrath of God. I did not know what was going to come about. I I was expecting violence. And thankfully, the nicer person interrupted that 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 discussion and took me in a completely different direction. The world hates Jesus. Because Jesus tells them not good enough unless you trust in me. He says to them, you will be sorrowful. But this will not be it, be the end of the story. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. Notice that Jesus does not say that your sorrow will be replaced, per se, with joy, or even traded for joy. We used to sing a song. I used to sing a song in this church. Hopefully you've noticed we don't sing it anymore. I'm trading my sorrows. I'm trading my shame. I'm trading my sickness. I'm trading my pain. I'm laying them down for the joy of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, there is no trade. No. It is not, I will take away the sorrowful thing that makes you unhappy so that I can give you a good thing to make you happy. Instead, it is the same thing that has caused you sorrow will be the same thing that causes you joy. The same thing that caused you sorrow will be the same thing that you point to as your source of joy. And that is unavoidable. That you cannot run from. As a matter of fact, those who follow him, he says, you, if you choose to, if you want to follow me, you must take that. Because that is the only way to joy. The pain, the agony. The ultimate death of the cross would give way for them uncontained, unimaginable joy where at the resurrection. But the resurrection will only come by way of the cross. No other path. Hebrews 12, 2, for the joy set before him. He endured the cross, scorning its shame. Joy will only be accomplished 
through the cross, the very thing that they would run and hide from would be, would be the very thing that they stand in boldness and proclaim to the world. The cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, what brings you joy? Where is your greatest joy found? Where do you go to seek joy? Here's another one. What joys have you had in your life? And how long have they lasted? Think of the highest joys. Think of the greatest joys. Are you still right now joyful and gleeful over them? How many of those joys can you still recall that, that still give you the same full, satisfying joy that you had when they occurred? Think about it, then think hard. Jesus likens this anxiety, this pain, and the joy that comes through it to the one thing that the disciples were most aware of, because it was the most common example during that day, and it was that of a woman giving birth. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. Jesus uses that hour as his hour. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Giving birth is the closest example that Jesus can liken his disciples to. And for women, there is great pain. There is great travail. There is a pain and a travail that we men will never know. And my wife reminds me of that every time I, I stub my toe or something. Or every time I feel sick and try being pregnant. And giving birth, she reminds me, you don't know pain. And she looks at me like, you caused this. Uh, there is anguish. But anguish turns into uncontainable joy. And I can remember not giving birth, obviously, but waiting. The broken sleep patterns as my son was being prepared to come into the world, as that hour was approaching. The, the calming my wife down, the it's going to be okay, the, the pain will subside until finally saying, doctor, give her an epidural, she can't handle it. Uh, and then finally, the birth, that, that great pain, that great struggle, the great travail, and finally there was a cry of life. And through that pain, uncontainable joy, uncontain I can remember sleeping with my, my son. That first night with him on my chest. And that is a joy that I cannot think of that can be matched by anything. It's having my son with me. And there were times when I lay in bed and I bring him, because he's so active, I bring him back onto my chest and he's almost as big as me now. <laughs> Just for the, the, the purpose of trying to recall what that moment was and what it was like. And it lasts but a moment because he is quickly off to do his own thing. Christ going away will cause pain. But that pain will be turned to joy when you see that he has been raised to life. You will know that joy. Just as a child's life brings forth pain or pain comes out of a child's life. So the greatest joy will come from the most inconceivable means, the cross. So also you have sorrow now because I am going to die. But when you see me again, you will be uncontained joy. You will have uncontained joy because of life and your hearts will rejoice. And listen, and no one will be able to take that joy from you. That is not to say to them, you will never experience sorrow again. 
But it is, it is to say this. Even through our tears, we have learned joy. Even in the midst of tears, we know joy. We have stood at gravesides and wept with every fiber of our being. And yet in the center of that great sorrow, we know and have joy. We've looked with agony concerning the circumstances of life. And yet in all of that, we know and have joy. A joy that the world has never given us. Therefore, the world can never take that away. If our joy is dependent upon what the world has given us, then we will, then it will, that joy will disappear when the world takes it back. Meaning this, if our joy is wrapped up in my income, then when my income disappears, so will my joy. Meaning that if my joy is wrapped up in my possessions, then when my possessions disappear, then so will my joy disappear. If my joy is wrapped up in the passions of my flesh, then when I die, I will be cast from the presence of God and never never will experience true, eternal joy. Some of you may be saying, well, if I just had a million dollars, I could catch up on things. No, you could never catch up. Give me a million dollars. I'll spend it in two days. I promise you I'll spend a million dollars. I could spend money like that. Give me. Don't give me a million dollars. And don't give you a million dollars. No, our joy is not wrapped up in those things. But when my joy, our joy is wrapped up and consumed in Christ, then all things can be taken away from me. And yet I still have everything because everything is in Christ. Take my house, take my car, take my family. And I still have everything. I have Christ. Luther said, yet is their profit small. These things shall perish all. But the word of God remains forever. Christ and what he has accomplished. This, brothers and sisters, this is your joy. And this is a joy that the world cannot take away from you because God has reconciled you to God, to himself. Through Jesus Christ, you now have peace with God and joy as a result. No one can take that from you. So where is your joy? Where is it found? Where do you seek it? And do you realize that in all places other than Christ of finding joy, they will all be empty? It is only in Christ that you will find that I, even as I speak about joy today, right now about Christ, and even as I'm pointing to the cross, you're smiling because your joy is full. And you know this is the only place where joy can be found. The world will tell you Christ produces no joy. Christ only robs you of joy. And Christ points back to the world and says, nay, they will steal, kill and rob you of joy. But I have come to give you life and life to the full. Joy is found in Christ And in Christ alone, do you realize that you were created for joy? The Westminster Confession and the London Baptist Confession both agree. What is the chief aim of man? It is to enjoy God. Enjoy God. Enjoy God. Find joy in God. Enjoy God. 
find joy in God. Do you realize that's what enjoy means? Enjoy. I find it in that. I enjoyed myself. I enjoyed. I found joy in that process. My joy is found in God. But you were created for joy. That is why you seek so passionately after it. That is why you will go even to the extremes of seeking out sinful things. Why? For the purpose of finding some kind of joy. Only to find out that the sinful passions of the world are empty. And they will cost you more than you wanted to pay. And keep you longer than you wanted to stay. Those joys can only be lived for a moment. They can be relived through a picture, but for a moment. They can be relived through a video, but only for a moment. And it is, it is bittersweet because you look at the picture and you look at the video and you realize it is since past. It is no longer here, but it is now gone. They have grown up. And no longer are they lying on your chest at night, but you are waiting up for them at night to come home. Or you're waiting weeks for them to call you. In Christ, joy is found and joy is full. And it is not short-lived. It is not fleeting. It is eternal. Friends, do you know that joy this morning? And if you do not, then I urge you. Repent of your sins. Trust in Christ and know the joy that we are talking about this morning. There are members sitting around you. Members, you're not here just to come and listen. You are here to encourage one another to pursue that joy. Pursue that joy. If you're an unbeliever this morning and you don't know that joy, then talk to someone around you. Talk to one of the elders around you. We would love to talk to you about these things. What is Jesus revealing to his disciples? Jesus is exposing a pattern of authentic Christian experience. The pattern is this. It is that of death and resurrection. As I said last week and the week before and the week before, Jesus is the the prototypical man of faith. And he is the prototypical pattern of what the spirit accomplished, first accomplished in Christ. He comes to replicate in our lives. He takes the pattern of the redeemer. And he impresses it upon his elect. What's the pattern of the redeemer? Death. Resurrection. And life. That is going to be your pattern in life. That is your lot in life. Death and resurrection. Second Corinthians 4.12. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. This is how the spirit conforms us to life in Christ. This is the pattern of the Christian life. When it pleases God in his providential kindness to bring us into the depths and even the deaths. It is not because he is cold and it is not because he is He is unloving. It is because he is gaining glory for himself by conforming you to the image of his son who is forever praised. The same pattern that Christ experienced will be the same pattern that his disciples experience. What do they soon experience? Sorrow. Yes. Joy. And then what? Sent out into the world to do what? To declare and then die so that they could rise to life. Go through every single one of the disciples. Read Fox's Book of Martyrs. They all, all their lives were taken. That is the pattern of the Christian, authentic Christian life. 
And we cannot escape that pattern. The only way you can escape it is to forsake it. You cannot escape that pattern. And think about this. Fragrance is only appreciated when the flower is crushed. And there are people in this church and those whom you know who are going through difficult times right now. And for those who are standing through those difficult times, listen, there is a fragrance about them. They may not know it, but others can see it. There is a fragrance about them. That in the midst of their trial, in the midst of their struggle, in the midst of their sorrow, they are standing and trusting in the only one who is the source of their joy. There's a fragrance about them. It's a fragrance of life. It's a fragrance of Christ. And for those who are not standing, but those who have turned heel, there's also a fragrance about them. And it's a fragrance of death. But you cannot escape that pattern. If you are to follow Christ. What is that life giving fragrance? It's Christ. They are a fragrance unto life. They are the ones who have stood. And they will continue to stand. And you look at them and say there's something about you. There's something different about you. I don't know what it is. I know all these other men are losing their jobs. But there's something different about you. Because you too are, have lost your job. But you're still standing. What is that about you? How are you? Christ. Christ in me. The hope of glory. So stand. Christ-likeness does not come cheaply, brothers and sisters. Amy Carmichael, a missionary to India, has a, a beautiful poem that reads this. Hast thou no scar, no hidden scar on foot or side or hand? Yet as the master shall the servant be, and pierced are the feet that follow me. But thine are whole. Can he have followed far, who has no wound, who has no scar. You are all marked. You have all been scarred. You can show the wounds and say, look, this is your lot in following Christ, but there is joy at the end of this road. Don't be afraid to show your scars. Don't be afraid to show your wounds. What did Christ say when he stood before them? See? Touch here. See here. You will ask in my name. And finally, three, you will ask in my name. Verse 23. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Jesus assures them that he will no longer be with them. And he says this, and you will ask nothing of me, but you will ask the Father in my name. So up until now, apparently, they had gone to Jesus for everything. And he says to them, you will no longer have this pattern. Instead, when I leave in that day, you will go to the Father yourself. You will go to the Father yourself. Why? Because the Father loves you. He has given you access unto himself, not by your merit, but by the very merit of Christ. You go to the Father and you have a key. That is the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ask anything in my name. And he will hear you. 
Again, we live on this line, this side of Calvary and Pentecost, where before that was impossible to go to God on your own. Rather, there was an in-between, a go-between, a mediator. And Christ is saying to them, I am your mediator and I am allowing you access into the Father's presence. You will realize that my leaving will not rob you of anything. And how could the leaving of Christ not rob them of that which was most valuable to them? It will be good for you. In that day, you will not ask anything of me. But my presence will be with you. I am going to the Father not to rob you. The very opposite. To bless you. Because my going to the Father, his going to the Father will unlock for you the very riches of heaven, which is this. You now have access to God. The veil has been torn from top to bottom. Freely and boldly come to his throne of grace. Ask in his name. He is the the sin conquering, Satan vanquishing, ascending Lord of glory. And up until now they have not asked for anything in his name. And now he was saying, ask in my name. But what is he doing? He is weaning them off of his physical presence. It is good for you that I am going away. Whatever you ask the Father in my name, you will receive. And this is one of the passages that has been greatly abused by the so-called church. We do not come to Christ and ask, or God to ask for silly, selfish things. And then do so in the name of Jesus, as they do on so-called Christian radio or TV. You've seen them. They ask for million time fold, thousand time fold. So five dollars and God will give or five thousand dollars and God will give you five million dollars. And they end it in the name of as if it was some kind of magical formula that makes things happen just because they said in the name of Jesus. That's right. That's right. No, this is no magical formula. This and that is selfish. And for man's glory and not God's. We ask for things that glorify God. We come to Christ for things that glorify God. And if we're going to ask in his name, we should at least ask for the things that are within his will. And that bring him the most glory. What makes the heart of the Christian leap for joy? The glory of the father. What makes the heart of the Christian, the true Christian, what makes it leap for joy? God getting glory. That is the great mission of the son. And it is then the great mission of his children. Why were we at the marketplace yesterday to practice our apologetic skills, our debating skills, our evangelistic skills? It was for God's name to be glorified as people come. Repent and believe in him. It's for God. Though there is confusion, Christ is pointing his disciples to that which will ultimately bring them their greatest joy. And it is this. Christ reconciling the world to God. That is the greatest joy. That those who have been foreknown and foreloved by the Father have had their sins atoned by the Son. And have had their hearts 
regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And that, my dear brothers and sisters, will be the greatest joy that you ever experience in your life. Having peace with God. Because peace with God now gives you access to God. Now you can go to God in the name of Jesus. We can come to the Father on the merit of Christ. And we do not pray to Christ for selfish things. We pray to Christ for things that bring God glory. We pray, Lord, help me to witness to my unsaved family members. Lord, help me to witness to those on my job. God, give me a greater passion and desire for you. God, help me to read your word more, to pray more. These are things that God will answer in Christ's name and that are for his glory. You now can go to the Father on your own. A story is told of a disgruntled soldier during the Civil War. He wanted to speak to President Abraham Lincoln But he could not hold court with him. Each time he tried, he was sent away by the guards who were guarding the office where the president resided. So the man stood outside the White House on one of the benches and began to put his face in his hands and cry. As he cried, a little boy stood in front of him and said, sir, what's wrong? He said, "I've, I've been trying to get to the president all day. And he begins to explain to him his trouble. The little boy grabs that man's hand and walks him through. The White House, past the guards, past soldiers, and then right into the president's office and says, Dad, this man needs to speak to you. And brothers and sisters, that is exactly what Christ has done for you. We had no access to God. We were separated from God, but his son has come by mercy and grace, taken us by the hand when we could not get in by ourselves, and we didn't want to. And brings us to the Father and says, this, Lord, is one of your own that you have chosen from the beginning of the world. Before the world has begun. God is not angry toward his elect. He beckons his elect. And he has sent Christ on his behalf to save them. My dear friends, where is your joy found? And can you, you can now go to the Father. And ask anything that brings glory to the Father. And ask in the name of Christ. This morning we come to his table. 